Good morning, Jan. How are you this morning? I'm good, but you've got politics and I've well, got sex. I've, I've got blood on the ground <laughs> is what I've got. Well, I've got lots of things happening but on beds and l- trays and l- tables. Well, let's go with sex first. It sounds far more interesting. <laughs> Welcome back, Honey Brown. Thank you so much for having me. I love being here. Oh, isn't that nice to know? We're such nice people. Oh, we are, because we read the books, don't we? We actually do. For the last Five books Honey Brown has written about people with psychological problems and often in isolated settings which give these books that real thriller read. Honey Brown's changed tack with her next book, Six Degrees. Now, Honey, Six Degrees isn't published by Penguin as your last five were. Why not? Well, I think Penguin just wanted to stick with that thriller line. Uh, and I can understand that. They really want to put me in that pocket as a psychological thriller writer. And I guess in a way, um, when you go to a new publisher too, you can sort of have those two separate personas a little bit. It's, It's almost like having a different name in a sense that you can shake off all the psychological side and just um, get down to the sexy side. So I just feel for your readers that hopefully they will find this new one because it's the characterisation and the great plot you have going through this book that that signifies, once again, a really, really good read. Oh, you know what I was surprised at? Because, you know, Penguin do have a lot of different categories like their Michael Joseph and their you know, other ones that it wasn't picked up because sex, it's a popular topic. I know. At the moment, it's just going great guns. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't know exactly the reasons behind it, but um, they still are yeah, really welcoming for any of my thriller work. And um, Venture is loving yeah. anything more right, um, erotic style, so I'm happy all around. Look, you call it erotica, but I don't. I, I think you did a really good fleshing out of the sexual emotions Ah, uh, and and also actions before and after. You know, there was a reason for the sex. Oh, absolutely. And for me, it feels like a book about sexuality more than anything else. Uh, I wish there was a, a new genre and it was just sex lit because <laughs> I think it would perhaps fit in that category really well. Yeah. Well, look, there's the, the book and the book we're talking about is Six Degrees. It's got six different short stories and six different types of couplings in it. Now, what came first, the different types of couplings or the quantity of stories you wanted to write? Oh, absolutely, the couplings. I remember setting myself a challenge and the reasons each story has that almost a cliched heading in a way. I really wanted to get behind those cliches. I've got threesome, one of the real story behind a threesome instead of what we usually just get online or which thrown these sort of shallow stories about it. So I had threesome, two women, two men, first time, older, younger. I really wanted to look at the actual truth of those stories and how those stories, perhaps could the sex within those could even be redemptive type sex. It could be really good sex and, and get get back to the sort of um, relatable sex that we all can sort of relate to, I guess, yeah. Well, threesomes, I know when I looked at the title, I thought, oh, gee. <laughs> but what day of the year does threesomes take place? It takes place on Valentine's Day, and I recently had a review where someone said, 
um, how um, how this author managed to have a marriage proposal and a threesome and still pull it off being romantic, I'm not really sure. But that's exactly what happened. It was just lovely. Well, we know that uh, Monica gets a flower and a card. And what does the card say? Marry me. From Justin. But what, but what makes this different on this particular – well, no, what makes it the same? <laughs> Well, they're, um, they're friends, I, said. I, I guess in today's term I think it's called their friend zoned. Yeah. So it's a joke essentially. They've known each other for a long time and um, the marriage proposal is just um, a joke but with a real true mm. undercurrent there. Well, we also think is, is there a difference between friend sex and... That's true too. That comes out too. That passionate they've, sex. Yeah. They've, um, yeah. Each encounter they've had, they've just sort of been bound by that, um, that friendship and to break that down... Um, another one comes in and mm. raunches things up. Raunches things up. Well, see, and this is where we have the true um, vulnerability of the characters. Quote, Monica often questioned her own sexiness. She was not always confident in bed and had never felt as experienced as her girlfriends when they talked about sex. And it's true. <laughs> That's so much what I wanted to do. Um you know, I was frustrated by uh, so much shallow sex we see. And, I mean, it's, a, it's needed. There's this sort of throwaway sex. I call it junk sex. That's needed too. But th- there's such an overkill. There's so mm. much of that. And I think young people in particular, young adults, need to read some real sex so that they, they're not just overwhelmed by this junk sex. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one of the friend sex times they had, Justin and Monica, there was the comment, it's like having sex with my sister. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a threesome is probably something you would never do with your sister, but you know, it, with all of the sex, who was in control? Oh, I, um, with the female characters, I, d- I don't even think I pushed that angle. It was just so natural for me, mm. for the the women in my life, the women I know myself, the sort of um, that they bring their own sexuality to it. Um, each coupling, th- the women have complete sort of control just in the sense that they're sexual beings in their own right so they bring that to the table and the guys bring their own sexuality to the table well <laughs> talking about sex at the table that first bit actually <laughs> did happen inside an inner city restaurant <laughs> so we went from um, a restaurant to suburbia fly fishing waters in the country and as far away as the gold fields in Kalgoorlie this is where women are you know, strongly outnumbered and lots of money to be made. But what's a skimpy? Uh, a skimpy is a scantily dressed barmaid. Ah. Um, and, yeah, they still have clothes on, but it's very flimsy. So Lainey was one of these and uh, she had clo- well, not many clothes on, but it her makeup, and this is another quote, her makeup was a mask. It was something to take off when she got home, a skin she could shed so she could climb into bed clean and different, softer. Yes, Lainey to me isn't a typical skimpy in the sense that, um, you know, she's more of a dancer. She's wearing a bikini, which I think they had bikini nights, when I, if I remember, and she's, you know, not really got the high heel thing going on. She's a little bit more down to earth. And she meets Michelle. Out of all these men, yes. it's Michelle that takes her fancy. And even Michelle comes back and uh, to her caravan and says, well, I'm self-conscious. And you think, yep, no, there's... Oh. Mm. Now, often the rolling surf is the setting as a metaphor for sex. But there's still a lot of action in the flat, still water. Another short story. What was Tasha's job? 
Oh, she's a fly fishing guide up in the Snowy Mountains. So she she meets Daryl, a much older man, and uh, there's more going on than fly fishing. Yeah, absolutely. She's a great character. I really love her and I love him too. She's such a proper country girl. Um, and I think in there somewhere I mentioned that it's the country girl thing isn't an act. It's not something she just puts on down the pub and takes off when, you know, someone wants her to be the girly hair again. She is a true down-to-earth girl and she's um, lots of fun. Well, quoting again, Tasha had five sisters instead of five brothers. She might have been better mastered the skill of emotional mani- manipulation in a, a, an ability she was sorely lacking. Yeah, and she she just she didn't know how to. <laughs> yeah, she's really likable, I reckon. She is. Uh, well, that older man was Daryl, and he apologised if his attentions seemed out of place because it was Natasha that initiated sex with him. But this was much different for that younger man in another book, Patrick. Yes. Patrick wantonly ogled <laughs> Sonia, who was a good 30 years older. And can I just put out there, all women of my age, 40-plus, um, young guys are like that. They're really open and warm. Um, so, I mean, I suppose the male listeners might not, or they might remember back when they were that age. There's something gorgeous about young guys. They're, they're very, um, you know, they're just really relaxed around older women. And um, I think that comes out in the story. So uh, the older woman, Sonia, she really had a choice about whether to encourage it or not. But she ended up walking away with uh, enjoyment and sex opened an avenue of confidence and reassurance with herself, which was, which was lovely. lovely. Yeah. Now, who said that a love story between two men was cliched? Well, I, all the way through, that's what was in my mind. That was the, obviously the toughest one for me to write because I'm not a guy. So I really had to... Um, you know, stretch my mind and, and find that masculine part of myself. And I did have, that was the one story I did have to check. I emailed some gay friends and said, okay, would you read this for me? Give me some feedback. And they did. They were great. They, they got back to me and said, mm, you could fix this a bit, this a bit, that, that's, this would be more normal. And um, so I did those changes and I think that really helped the story. Where did these two men meet? At a writer's, um, <laughs> at a writer's club and I love that too. It's, um, you know, I, I've never been to one myself, but I've visited them as an author speaking and I must have just absorbed the whole the whole experience because that story, aside from the guys and the sex, that story was just such a such an easy, great one to write because I just had taken in that writer's club vibe. Oh, yeah, with all the different dimensions. That, yeah. that was so funny. If you're in a writer's group, it's probably worthwhile reading it just to get all the social mixings of people and of course on the wall there was the wise owl drawing and I think the the owl would have looked down and thought it was a good idea that they locked that door. Absolutely. (laughs) And our last short story was about Emma Tate and how she re-met her neighbour Keegan who'd moved away at an 18th party. There's alcohol and a spa and very difficult first sexual accounts because they were both virgins. But they had history. Emma Tate had witnessed an awful accident. And this a thread of this through the entire six stories, which I thought was just marvellous. 
Yeah, I, um, I've had a lot of feedback about it and how much people enjoy um, picking up those little hints all along the way. Some people do read them just as short stories and others just go so in-depth. And if you want to, you can. You can do that. You can really read it as a novel and look for all those connections, which are really fun. And that's why it was so much fun. It was jigsawing, the whole thing. Like, and just to, to tell you a few, we know that Justin, the uh, chef in the first one, had been in an accident that changed him. Lainey in the second one in Kalgoorlie had uh, told that her biological father had been killed in an accident and then the third story with the older the older chap he was fly fishing for the first time using his dead friend's rods and so it went on and I'm reading this and I'm getting more and more of these clues until the last one with young Emma had a part-time work and I knew what a job was. I knew where she worked before did it was even Did you pick that written. up? That's I clever. did. Oh, look, I tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed this. So how did you write it? Did you sort of write the plot first and then make no, short stories? it was actually the other way around. I wrote the short stories quite separately in between writing my thrillers during that sort of publicity stage where I couldn't really get stuck into a new book. I just wrote these short stories and I really had no idea of um, why or what I was doing writing them. I've, I've always loved to write sex, so I guess I was just doing that in my spare time and my downtime writing about sex. And, um, yeah, and it wasn't until I got a few together and I thought, you know, these are really good, but so I sort of thought I might be able to tie these together. So that actual tie-in came at the end. Well, of course, the board of the book is called Six Degrees, and the rest of the paraf- oh, the tone is Six Degrees of Separation. So we have six different short stories, but they're not really separate. They're mm. all wound together. That gives a, an absolutely satisfying read. Another fabulous book by Honey Brown, Six Degrees, and it's uh, published by uh, Ventura and Oh. Golly, it's a good read. Thanks again, Honey Brown. Thank you so we'll much, We'll have everybody Jane. going out and joining writers' groups. You never know <laughs> what you might find in a writers' group. You know, I think at the end of the story it says that's how a writers' group should end. <laughs> a, a session in a writers' group writing about sex, perhaps. But this leaves me with a problem. How do I segue into my topic? I mean, politics is known as an aphrodisiac at some times, but politics is also a brutal business. In his account of the Brumby Bracks state Labor government, Joel Dean documents the challenges associated with power and politics. The book is entitled Catch and Kill, The Politics of Power. So, Joel, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me, and I'm sorry, listeners, there's no shagging in my book. <laughs> but uh, well, po- politicians are notorious at times, aren't they? I mean, they're mad uh, shaggers at times. Is that what you're saying? Well, they're, they're, I was going to say something completely rude about uh, who please, they f over, be, but I can't say yeah, that. Yeah, it's a different. Air. No, you can't. But um, it's a different sort of um, uh, 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 congress, I'd suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we can proceed with this interview. How did we you... can just keep, keep going down that rabbit hole, I think. Let's well, follow it. Let's see where it leads us. See where it leads. How did you come to write this account of the uh, Brumby Bracks uh, government? Well, I'm I'm a uh, I'm a poet and novelist generally, and uh, but I I also uh, have worked in uh, Labor Party politics on and off for almost twenty years. As a, as a uh, press secretary and speechwriter. I was a speechwriter for both Brax and Brumby and I've written speeches for people like Bill Shorten as well. And so after the Brumby government lost in 2010, I was out of politics at that point. Um, John Brumby got in touch with me and said, 
do you want to write the story of the Brax Brumby government? And I said, no, I don't want to write the story of the Brax Brumby government because, frankly, they're really, to put it crudely, they're batshit boring. You know, the chronology of, and then we did this and then we did this. But what I was interested in is power. Mm. And that whole, I, went to, I was interested in, in a cycle of power. You know, how people win it, what they do with it, how they lose it. And I was also interested in the characters, sort of a narrative. And I, was, I wanted to write a, a narrative non-fiction book about, you know, some political characters, which is Brax Brumby, John Thwaites and Rob Hulls. Mm. Well, this is what is interesting. In, as a writer, how do you tackle a boring topic, so to speak, of politics? But you've begun by looking at some, uh, well, four of the major power brokers that mm. sort of uh, drove the new government forward, yes. Brumby, Hulls, Thwaites and Brax. Yes. So, yeah. I, and it, look, I, I began life in the 80s as a tabloid journalist. Now, here's confessions for you. <laughs> and uh, the thing that I used to love when I was a journalist was talking to people, or actually more listening to people. You turn up at their front door. I remember door knocking an entire street once. You turn up at people's front door, they invite you in, you have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, and then they just start spilling. And so this, I took this as a great opportunity to go back to my roots. And I had dozens of conversations. I had probably 12 to 14 hours of interviews with Brumby alone in which we just and in which we talked i didn't go in with a, an agenda and but those dozens of interviews for hundreds of hours it's where the story came from that from those conversations well what interested me in these initial stages of the book where you put the emphasis mm. on the character is the role of chance in their political careers indeed indeed and they all of you know the the four the four main characters Brax, Brumby, Thwaites and Hulls they 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 came into state politics or got into parliament um, through you know, in spite of the factions, really. Well, in spite of the factions, but also then, you know, or is it I've, despite the factions? <laughs> there, you know, there was a flood, a death, all these sorts of things, yes. which sort of serendipity. Yes. Yeah, the serendipity. So, how much is of politics is associated with that sort of serendipity? Well, there's, um, you know, windows open, and um, and the and the question is whether the right people go through. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and the thing is that something which um, Cicero said, you know, is one of my favourite speech makers from the from you know the roman is a roman as uh, a roman politician he said that you know that really you you don't have that you don't you you don't have the chance to be to be a private citizen and complain about public life i'm paraphrasing if you want to if you're unhappy with public life get involved and i think that these are four people i don't agree with everything they did i don't but i, I respect them and i and they were people who got in there for a reason and and uh and fought to get in, so that not just Spivs got in, into Parliament. And I think that that's our our, our, de our democracy works best when people of of real of real merit, with real um, with a fire in their belly, get in for the right reasons and are given those opportunities. Well, another thing that stood out then was also uh, these four men were not necessarily linked or as linked as much to the factions within the Labor Party. No. How much no. did that play in their rise to well, power? Well, the um, what one thing that helped them was that, you know, after the fall of the Kona, the Kona government in 1992, the um, the factions things were so bad within the Labor Party that the factional head said we need to clean house. So things got that bad that the factions came together and decided that they needed to get good people into politics, into parliament, and so that that the factions had a really positive role to play 
in the in in that yeah it's it, it's eyebrow raising I know but they did because what you say <laughs> but about then, but then they then the factions also as we know can go can go the other way and be destructive. Well, uh, one little quote here: in factional politics, there are two kinds of kills: the kind done for a meaningful purpose and the thrill kill. The attempt to unseat John Bromby as leader after only seven months in the job was purely a thrill kill, exhilarating and pointless. How yes. often does that go on? All too often. And we only have to look at the shenanigans of the last federal Labor government to see that. Oh, and, you know, yeah. and this, I mean, one of the things that also drew, drew me or drove me to write this book is a great unhappiness with, you know, with federal politics in particular. I, I think that, you know, it's, for me, it's instructive that, that, you know, good things can happen. Good people can succeed if they do, if they're, if they're, if they're driven for the right reasons and doing the right and doing things for the right reasons and have support from good people and federally i think we've been really let down by consecutive conservative and labor governments indeed i don't know if there's much difference between both of them but again one of the things you highlight in this book is the influence of the the brumby bracks government on a, a national level but let's go back to the state level mm. i mean what was the brumby bracks agenda what sort of things did they influence how did they go about it? Well, one of the things that happened that Brumby did when they were in opposition was he he said, "Well, look, the Labor Party really hasn't had a a, a, a platform of, of any note since the 1970s, since the you know the 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 work that was done before John Cain was elected." And so he he got Brax to create a a new party platform, a new almost like a program, a Whitlam-esque sort of program, of, and it was about fiscal conservative, socially progressive, and they had this huge sort of, you know, and there's this huge amount of work to come up with a policy agenda. And that's and that's when, whether the government is conservative or Labor, that's what they're meant to do in opposition. And we've, and unfortunately, too many governments now don't do that. And we see that what happens when they come in without an agenda, they get lost. And that's what happened with Rudd, that's what happened with, has happened with Abbott. Mm, that, well, they've got no platform and they're not trying to sell their platform. No, it's all about, you know, it's all about political gamesmanship. Yeah. And, but some of the areas that then the Brumby Bracks government covered, um, well, they looked at the country, they looked at rail, they looked at water, yeah. and they often did it without uh, federal and national aid. No, that's one of the things that Brax and Brumby, this is where the title of the book comes from, they were very keen on being independent of, of Canberra, on b being able to say no to Canberra, because Canberra raises most of our taxes and then they hold that as a carrot over the state governments to get them to do what they want. And this is a government that was, because they were financially independent, and that's you've got to say that that was also partly because of the Kennett government and the work that they did, but they used that independence to tell Canberra where to go when they wanted to. And so, and the way that Brax put it is that the, ours was a government I'm quoting here that could catch and kill its own. So that's where the title comes from, indeed. catch and kill. Indeed. So how important is that notion of independence to getting things done? I think it's important um, that you you know to getting things done, but also to coming up with your own agenda and not being pushed around by others. I mean, the thing is, is that governments are much less independent than they used to be, both at a federal and a state level. But you have to have You've got to stand for something and have an idea and try to actually get out there and be proactive and do things because there's a government that gets in just to win power, and we see this in New South Wales, New South Wales Labor in particular, governments that just try to win power for the sake of power, you know, they're meaningless and, they, and it's corrupting in its own way. So you have to actually get in and do something because every government, you know, they, the, way, the way I put it in the book is that governments are like dogs, they age very quickly. And, you know, so you have to be able to... 
you know, make the most of that opportunity, that window of opportunity before it closes and the electorate puts you to sleep. And they also have a pack mentality as well. Yeah, very good. Uh, <laughs> um, but another interesting thing is the the Brumby Brax government looked at um, rail and water, amongst other things. Yes, which uh, were a focus and a platform, but mm. at the same time they're undoing in some ways. Well, yes, and I think that it's it's the thing. In most governments, the mistakes that kill them are quite often made really early on. The seeds are sown very early on. So early on, the state government, the Brax Brumby government, decided we're going to spend lots of money on public transport. It was going to be in regional Victoria. So they did regional rail. They didn't invest in metro rail because they thought they had time. But there was population growth. There was a spike in patronage on the metro system. And they got behind the eight ball and they never could catch up. So they made that was a... A fatal error, and they 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 uh, they got that wrong, and they also they also thought that politically it wouldn't kill them, and it did. And then Mikey came along. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and we're still facing that one. Well, yeah, Mikey is interesting because what it speaks of is I think that a lot of public the public sector is yet to come to terms with dealing with ICT, with mm. you, know, you know, IT, computers, it's almost, it's, it's almost cat weaselish. You know, we just, they just have not been able to master it and they get taken, uh, taken advantage of by shonks. Mm. And the other one was water, which was forward thinking in terms of what they're looking at, country mm. and city and water supply and security. Yes. But also then that became... Yeah, it did. And that's, I think that that was a really interesting one because they did so much work, um, particularly Thwaites did, and yet, even in spite of that, you know, they still got to this point where the they did the numbers around the middle, you know, two thousand four five, and they were going to run out of water, and so that's why we had the um, the desal plant built, which is still still controversial. But Brack still says that he thinks that ultimately we proven right. Yeah. Well, I think in within the next ten years, I think the the desalination plant will come into its own because we will have another drought. Yes. But it, it's just you know when it's raining. Uh, people's immediate thought is, well, why are we paying for all yeah. this? Yeah, and that's also one of the things that hurt Brumby in 2010 is that people had been really saying, yeah, desal is expensive, but it's a good thing. And then around 2010, the, the drought broke and started raining. We had a lot of <laughs> rain in that year, and it didn't help. Brumby, you know, he, he couldn't take a trick in 2010. But the other thing is every government is meant to fall, and it was time for that government to go. Mm. And Now... Part of this agenda then was, or the the platform they put together and the focus, um, things like growing Victoria together and uh, growing mm. government together and things like that, were adopted nationally. Yes. Well, if you look at 2001, you know, the Tampa election, and then you had 9-11, what, the, what happened with that was that if you look at the COAG, which is the Council of Australian Governments, their agenda really um, was overtaken by security issues and border protection, and there was no domestic policy agenda for several years. There was just a vacuum. And Brax and Brumby saw that, and they seized on that, and they developed what became the, the National Reform Agenda, which became signed off by Howard and Rudd, and a lot of it was was implemented, and it was a Victorian agenda. And you had this extraordinary situation where, before he was elected Prime Minister, Rudd came down to Victoria and spent a day getting briefed on his domestic policy agenda by the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet. I mean, it's just it's extraordinary the amount of influence and power those Victorian that Victorian government, and those Victorian bureaucrats had at that time. And it and it's also it's an indictment of the federal system that the federal government was so bereft of ideas that they had to come to Victoria to look for ideas. Mm. Um, but then mm. 
Sorry, Jan, did you want to say that? No? You're, you're fascinated by all of this. I'm listening intently. And listening this is intently. fascinating stuff. This is, com- this this is, is competing with mad shagging? Is <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sure the book's not mad shagging. I'm sorry, it's good shagging. It's controlled. Yeah. In my life, it's been a lot of bad shagging, but anyway. So. That's a different book. Yeah, it is. Uh, that'll be my memoir, people. So. Uh, well, we've got something to look um, out for. Mm. But uh, just the, the last, sorry to bring it back to more mundane things other than sex. Uh, sorry, I'm the one that did One Track Mind. No. I agree with Jan, it's so fascinating. I was just intrigued too. <laughs> but how often do politicians think of sex? That's the just, other thing. Well, but I'm just delighted. Just, can I get out one last question? Please? That our speechwriters have got this calibre. But then to what extent um, is the current uh, federal government and even the Andrews government still influenced by Brumby and Brax? Um, hugely. The idea is because Brumby and Brax were taking on, they, they were the last government that was taking the... the the Hawke Keating idea, which is let's try to do reform for the next generation. That actually was thinking not just about today and tomorrow, but next year and ten years and five a- a- ahead. And governments don't do that anymore, mm, and they need to. So, indeed, um, a criticism of current governments. The book, because we're going to have to end the interview here. Alas, alack. Alas, alack. And we really didn't get onto the sexual intrigue behind the politics, which is not really in the book. That, but that's, that's, a, that's a whole other book, is it? Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll do a, a dirty limerick for that next time. Yeah. Excellent, because you are a poet and, and uh, indeed, in your own right. indeed. Um, but the book is called Catch and Kill: The Politics of Power. The author Joel Dean, and it's a University of Queensland Press, uh, and it's eminently readable. Which, yeah. Well, as That's mine was, um, it was Six Degrees by Honey Brown, published by Ventura. That's it. Ruminations at the door. Thank you, authors. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jam. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.